from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jersey Gwizdowski, I'm an actor. Matt Cowart, I'm a director. Jennifer Kerfman, I'm an actor and a director. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and director. Today, we're doing the third in our series on storytelling moments. Our series focused on different specific storytelling elements of a play and ways that they can be used to contribute to the overall telling of the story. We've already done episodes on beginnings and endings, and today we're going to focus on transitions, those moments in a play where we move between times and or places, and usually, but not always, come at the end of a scene. Today we're going to be talking about the playwrights, directors, and actors around the table, about how they think about those kind of moments, and how they approach them differently, if they do approach them differently, than they do other kind of moments in a play. So let's start off talking from a playwright's point of view and in the writing. Um, how do you think about transitions in the writing of a play? Well, actually, I tend to write plays that have a unity of time and place. They take place in a single location over the course of the play, you know, in real time. So I don't have traditional transitions in most of the plays that I've written. I have a few older plays that have that are broken up by scene. But actually a transition in a play is both a beginning and an ending in the middle of your play. So it ends the the scene that's happening before and then it begins the new scene. So you have to kind of put both elements together in a successful and smooth way that forwards your story. So a good transition, I think, in a play would be a satisfying or a a dramatic question raised at the end of one scene and then launching you into the next section with either a new dramatic question or a comment on the what you just saw because you have the two scenes happening right next to each other. And even when it's within the same time and location, that can be with an introduction of a new element or a new character, and suddenly the action has changed and the, the direction of the story has changed. Transitions in a script, in the scripts, plays that I've worked on, plays that I've written, or plays that we've worked on in the Cry Havoc workshop, um, tend to manifest themselves on the page either as the juxtaposition of the end of one scene, the beginning of another, or in some instances the playwright will dictate some sort of framing device or format that helps shape the play. But all one needs to do as a playwright with respect to transitions is end something and begin something. The relationship between two scenes or the end of one scene and the beginning of another says a great deal. So as a playwright, there's a responsibility on us to acknowledge that relationship and that significance, whether or not you are structurally building in transitional moments or a transitional framing within your play itself. Yeah, one of my early plays that actually had scenes, I was looking at it, and the the transitions, I like in retrospect, were... It felt non-existent or very weak, but there would be a transition there if you were doing the play, if there was a production. Um, But what I had done then, when I didn't really focus on it, was I had something that needed to happen in the course of a scene, and that was the end of the scene. And then the next scene just picked up another day, another location, but I had no care placed to, like, what followed on the other other than chronologically this was the next thing that I wanted to write about Mm -hmm. Um, I think if I when I continue working on that piece ultimately I'll have to come back to how are we getting from one place to another other than there's a set change you know that there's 
a reason that we end in one place and begin in the next place that keeps the tension going and is not just, oh, we're done with this place, so now it's time for this place. And I think that gets into really the, the, the structural question of why is this scene coming next? Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully you have made a choice of I have, we have followed the journey as far as it is worth following it for this story in this room at this time. And now the most interesting and telling place for us to go next is to this other place and or this other time. And I think that that can really go a long way to informing what your transition is going to be, is something that can in some way reflect your choice of putting the scenes and putting the events of the play in the order that you have put them. And, you know, I do think it's something that I just think is really important to embrace as a playwright, is that those transitions are storytelling moments. They're not simply... and and. And I remember writing plays early on where it was really like, oh God, how am I going to get from here to here? What is, what reason can I come up with? But I I think if you really look at Mm -hmm. a play and why you've chosen to end the scene here, why you've chosen the next scene should begin here, you can very often find a way that you can connect those two and we can talk about what those are. Mm -hmm. Um, But I actually was in in preparation knowing we're going to talk about this. I I went back through some of my plays and looked at the transitions and there's one play in particular, uh, uh, A Writer for Children, which I think you guys know, that I noticed literally just going the last line of dialogue and stage direction of one scene and the first stage direction and line of dialogue of the next scene. You miss a ton of detail if you are only to look at those, but you really actually get the entire arc of the play mm. based on the fact that they had pushed the discussion as far as it could go here. You saw why they ended the discussion there. And again, because it's primarily a play between two people, it was why is it that the next interesting thing that's worth showing about their relationship is the next is the next thing. And um Anyways, it was very interesting to look at. And, and candidly, now that I've noticed that, I actually think I will set that as a challenge for myself in future plays that I write. I like that. Um, well, Kate, you mentioned why does this scene come next is sort of the central <clears throat> question of the transition for a playwright. And I think, like many things we discuss with respect to our work, whether or not you make the choice... It will read as a choice to your collaborators, to your actors, to your director. So you might as well make one. Um, And maybe to put it another way, it's an opportunity to tell your story. It's another tool at your disposal rather than a thing to deal with or to reckon with over the course of your work on your drafts of your play. It can be a very useful tool. And I think... What you found, Kit, is through clear storytelling and and attention to that structure, the um, the choices you'd made throughout your work in that particular play resulted in very clear beginning and ending moments um, because you took advantage of that tool. And there also is something in, in what you just said about that idea that people are going to draw connections anyway. And it is something we actually, I think, talk a lot when we're talking about plays, but I'm not sure I've ever talked about on the podcast, um, but that idea of post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is the Latin for before, therefore, because of. And it is a logical fallacy. The idea that something happened, then something else happened, therefore it happened because of the thing that happened before it. That is a logical fallacy. It is not, in fact, true in the world of logic or in the world of going through your life. It is an absolute rule in dramaturgy. Mm-hmm. It is an absolute rule in the way that people watch plays. And if you end a scene with someone being yelled at by their boss and leaving the boss's office, and you open the next scene with they're at home and they're yelling at their son, they're yelling at their son in the audience's head because they got fired by their boss. Now, it's one of the things in terms of as a sophisticated writer, you can have a lot of fun with I am going to let the audience make that assumption and then turn that assumption with new information they get partway through the scene. But you have to embrace the fact that that is what the audience is going 
to think. They are going to make a connection there. And you can, again, use it to turn it on itself or simply embrace the fact that I don't need to have him explain the fact that he is yelling at his son because he's mad about what happened at work as long as I put them together that way in the transition. And again, that idea of the, of the transition can do some uh, heavy lifting of connection, again, because the audience doesn't watch a story as a passive observer. They are making their own connections. And there's a lot of ways in which, again, transitions are an opportunity to either get the connections the audience is making to help sort of catapult you forward and let you skip some steps, or to use the assumptions an audience is going to make about what has happened in between um, the last thing they see and the new thing they're seeing, and use those assumptions against them to, to reverse an expectation that you've created. In them. Sometimes writers, when they are first writing transitions, treat them like cuts in television or film. Like they just end one scene and begin another scene. But one of the things that you have to take into consideration as a writer is that depending on where and who is in one scene and where and who is the other in, in the other scene, you cannot have an instantaneous transition from one place to another place or one group of people to another group of people on a stage. There are ways to approximate it, but you have to have a lot of money and a lot of design effort into that kind of a transition. So sometimes the job of the writer is to give room for one place to lead into another place or one group of people to leave, lead into another people. And so not imagining that you can go immediately from one place to another, you can build in your storytelling work with how you end the scene and how you pick up the other scene with those technical elements in mind just to give room f for that. Although it's not necessary, you could leave it up to the director to figure out how to do that transition. But like Jersey was saying, like you have an opportunity to use that in your play so you can, or you can leave it blank and let a director decide how we get from one place to another. I mean, I think there is, because I do think, and we are going to get into it as we get forward in terms of the director and the relationship between the playwright and director in terms of fashioning transitions. I think there is something where there is a responsibility on the part of the playwright to write a transition. Now, whether that transition, I will actually say fairly strongly, it is not, and the set trundles off to the left while a fly curtain comes in from the, yeah, that sort of stuff is going to be up to the director and the designers to figure out. You know, but I think there are ways that you can have a character walk directly from one scene into another scene. Um, Actually, I'm thinking about one of my plays, A Truly Marvelous Proof, where there actually is a whole sequence where it's one character walking back and forth between two different scenes and having conversations with two different people about the same topic, and you're sort of learning the story as he's going back and forth between the two people, but the way he's telling it differently to the two people, hopefully, is telling. But it is, the way it's written in the stage direction is, he walks past the refrigerator into the classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that there is some degree to which, especially with, you know, modern technology being what it is, but also, frankly, the ability in a black box set just to, you know, somebody comes out and lays a blanket on the ground and you've got a, 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 a transition right away mm -hmm. and immediately. But you still, though, if you're going to especially have one character be at the end of one scene and at the beginning of the next scene, you have a certain responsibility to justify why they are in both places and hopefully connect why they are in both places. That it is, and I actually was reading a play recently that I'm, I'm working with a playwright on, where it would just be like, 
they were a secondary character standing in the room while two other people are talking, lights down, lights up, and they're in the middle of a scene. And it was, it was very confusing. And interestingly enough, the thing that they changed about it to make that transition work was actually just to give that person the last line in the scene that related in some way to their first line in the next scene. And all of a sudden, a fairly small fix made a huge difference. But it is that idea, I think, as a playwright, you do have that responsibility to make those connections one way or another. Well, it sounds, Jen and Kit, like what you're both talking about is consideration, either consideration for the effect that the transition you write will have on your play and the way the audience will experience your play, or consideration for the production and the effect your transition will have on the production and the feasibility of said production. You are in a position to make it easier on, on, on logistically on your wardrobe crew or your director um, in terms of solving what might be a logistical problem, but you don't necessarily want that to be at the expense of achieving what you want to achieve in your play. And I think a lot of times as a playwright, writing a transition can be about finding that line. Yeah, I, I actually know as a writer something that I had to get over in a really significant way was tying myself down too hard to what I thought was possible. Uh, because I think as a director, I was very aware and frankly very proud for a long time that I was like, I never write anything that I don't know how you would do it on the stage. Because um, I write for the stage. And yet what I found is a couple of things, which is one, it kept me from being as creative as I could be. You know, because it was like I could only do the things that I knew technically how to do. Second, one of the things I realized over time is there are people who are much better at certain things than I am. Like, if I couldn't imagine how possibly they could make that costume change, there are people who that's the thing they do, and they can come up with magical solutions that are far beyond what I am capable of imagining in costume design. Um, you know, and also, frankly, as a director, and we will get into the director things, but I know a lot of the times my favorite moments uh, and the ones I find most fulfilling are the ones where I look at something on the page like how the hell is that going to happen um, and you figure it out um, but I, I think that that idea of there is a point at which you do have a responsibility to write a play that is stageable at the level it's going to be staged at that there comes a point in the rehearsal process where they're saying the guy's not making his costume change we need another 15 seconds at the end of this scene and it becomes your responsibility as the playwright as everyone else has done their job to the best of their ability well now you're a collaborator and you have to help them buy 15 seconds to make that happen but i just really would encourage writers to be ready to do that but not to let those sorts of decisions dictate and tie in their vision of the play because again you never know who's out there who's much better at their job than you are at their job and can do their job um, in a way that makes your ideal possible. Um, one of the specific challenges that often comes up for a playwright is to find ways to express the fact that time has changed and in some cases specifically how much time has passed. Sometimes it is and sometimes it is not part of the transition, but do you guys have thoughts about ways that transitions uh, can be used to help to clarify that sort of information? Definitely, and I think, um, I mean, there are a lot of different spans of time that can be covered in a transition, part of which I think can often be in the payoff of something that's already been established. So in many ways, the transition is the answer or the next step in a pattern of something that has already been established earlier in the play, whether it's through behavior or through dialogue or through setting. Those elements can be useful, but I think they can be made infinitely more useful if A, they happen at the beginning of the scene um, or at a point at which it's dramaturgically useful to reveal, 
or to deliver said information about the shift in time, and also if they are part of an established vocabulary within the play. Yeah, I think establishing a jump in time is is difficult, depending on the length of time. Like, it, it can be, like, if you tie your setting to different holidays, then you could, like, jump from Christmas to Valentine's Day, and then, and you know, the decorations have changed, so you can, oh, it's been, oh, I know how much time has passed. Hmm. Um, but if it's only been a week or four hours, it can be hard to do without referencing directly in the dialogue, which is can feel very clunky to be like, it's been four hours, like, mm -hmm. what have you been doing? It, you know, you have to, I mean, to do it without dialogue to, or indirect dialogue to, to establish because people want to know, like, what, how far, when, what are, where are we now? Like, mm -hmm. what, what's going on? Like, how long has it been? They want that information, but they, they don't want it handed to them, like on a title card, or with the first line out of the character's mouth to say, like, it's two weeks since I last saw you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it has, you know, you have to handle it with some finesse, and it can be difficult to write. Yeah, I think I, that idea of like the Christmas decorations and things like like, like that actually is something that it, I find those sorts of things very useful because they're visual and they have to do with not just, again, somebody volunteering up the information of how long it's been. Um, you know, and I, and I know, you know, for myself, there's this uh, transition in my play Makes Three that deals with a relatively short jump in time. Um, but where one scene ends with two characters laying on a bed listening to a baseball game and the lights go down and come back up and the baseball game is several innings later and they've both fallen asleep. But that there's something, you know, about that that you can write into the transition that's like, oh, I know roughly how long it takes to play four innings of baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, people can fill that in. And there's in uh, my play a, a Truly Marvelous Proof, that there's a, a sequence in it where this character is painting this giant painting that he says is going to take him about a year to finish. And it's jumping forward by several months at a time. But it, this is one of those things that I have no idea how they would do in production. Uh -huh. But it says, you know, lights up on uh, Jonathan, the painting is now two-thirds finished. Now, how they're going to do that, I don't know. I can think of five or six or seven ways I could imagine it might be done. Uh, depending on what the budget is, they're kind of very different ideas of how that might be done. But like that is a sort of thing again of, of using um, a design element in the transition to help establish a passage of time. Mm -hmm. You know, and there also is something that I think actually also gets into something else, but there was um, in uh, A Writer for Children, which I mentioned before, one of the things that's used frequently is the idea that the lights go down in the transition it says lights you know he's sitting on the couch lights down lights up he's standing by the window that there's some idea that time has passed because he has moved because the whole first act takes place in the same room uh -huh. and that actually is something that is an gets into another thing which is that idea of establishing an idea and establishing patterns in your transitions so that there's some similarity in the transitions one so that you can you know so people get accustomed to when this happens it means we're moving forward in time things can become a shorthand um, but that's one thing that's written into the into the play is that it's frequently lights down lights up and it says where he is in the room now or where she is in the room now but then it actually it's the play is largely about these two people and this third person who's trying to find them and there's a sequence late in the second act when he finally catches up with them where they're asleep in a tent it's as he comes out sits down on a stump across from the tent and takes out his gun and puts it on his lap lights down lights up he's sitting right where we left him mm -hmm. and that there's something about the fact that you had established that pattern of people always move in between um, 
in between things that clearly in that case it had been night and now it's day the time passage was, was is established uh, through design elements but it broke the pattern of that um, person and again it's that idea of if you're able to set up a pattern with the way that the transitions work there's the opportunity to do real storytelling there um, it's also something actually I know in, in my play Veep which you guys know there is a very clear pattern of what happens in between scenes is lights go down you hear the first two or three lines of the scene in darkness before the lights come up partly out of a technical concern of the fact that they have to move someplace and I didn't want the action to stop mm. but what happens in act two is there's a number of times where the lines in the darkness are repeats of lines from the first act except that when the lights come up they're in a very different situation than when they happen in the first act and that helps I think to draw connections back to what had happened three months earlier in the first act of the play. I think patterns like that can be incredibly useful in writing transitions, as can design elements. And I think, again, my best advice would be to use them as tools. If a design element is going to represent the passage of time, if it is the Christmas tree, it's more effective and useful if that element is somehow integrated into the story um, rather than an arbitrary Christmas tree. Similarly, if a passage of time is useful within the plot of your play, meaning um, the specific amount of time is significant, um, it is definitely worth making an overt acknowledgement of the passage of time. Um, that can manifest itself differently and in different ways in different scripts and at different points in different scripts. There may be <clears throat> a play whose story trucks along at a certain pace for a majority and then will have a significant time jump. And I think that's the point at which, as Kit said, establishing and then breaking a pattern becomes very useful. But another way to establish that pattern is if it is not important to your story to not get caught up in if it's several days to let the play cruise along at a pace that you establish until that jump happens and I do just generally think before we wrap up the playwriting side of things that in the best case scenario um, you're going to be doing some really important storytelling in those transitions I think that's what you want to aim for but I think minimally, you want to be sure there is some sort of a connection that makes us understand that the next thing we're seeing has something to do with the thing that happened before. There's a reason why it's in the same play. And I, um, you know, an, an example that occurs to me from uh, a truly marvelous proof, which I mentioned with the guy who's the famous artist that there's one point at which he's incredibly frustrated with something that happens and he destroys one of his paintings. And then we go to his son and his son's girlfriend at a boarding school. Um, and again, the guy is a famous painter. But what happens is you see him at this moment of crisis throw paint all over this painting he's been working on for a year. And then it crossfades to them in a classroom. And what, what the girlfriend is saying is, oh, I didn't know he was your father. And even though that's not, that well, that is actually his relationship with his father, the famous artist, is something that, that's an undercurrent through the whole play. Um, that I do think that there's something about that idea that it's at least acknowledging that they are existing in the same world that I think helps a lot and makes, makes it feel like for the audience, it makes sense that we are going here next. It makes them feel like they are in good hands, that they are in the hands of someone who's going to take them the place that they need to go next, since they don't have control over where they go next. So let's talk a bit about transition from the director's point of view. How is it that uh, you guys, as directors, uh, think about transitions? Well, in thinking about transitions, uh my, my teacher and mentor, Gerald Friedman, always said transitions are what separate the men from the boys. Uh, and I think what he was trying to uh, imbue in us, into, uh, to beat into our skulls, was that um, 
the opportunity for storytelling never stops. And in, you know, modern theater, we don't have the luxury of dropping the curtain and pausing for three minutes while the sets change to then raise it up again and pick up with the next scene. Uh, and so in thinking about how to approach transitions as a director, um, there are two main uh, purposes they can serve. One is, I think very literally, getting the audience from one place in time to another place and or time. Um, making sure they understand four hours passed or a month passed or just literally the, the given circumstances of the play. And uh, the other aspect is being able to highlight a piece of the story you want to be in the forefront of the audience's mind so that you are controlling and guiding what they are thinking about when they are entering the next scene. Uh, and ideally you can be doing both of those things all the time. You know, getting them logically from one place and location and time into another place and location and time. While also, you know, highlighting the dramatic question of the last scene or reminding us of the thing that we should be maybe thinking about as we enter into this next one. It's interesting that actually a lot of those things that you're talking about are very similar to the things we were talking about that a playwright um, does. I mean, there are certain things that a transition does. And it is something that, you know, we have talked about before, but I think transitions are a good place to highlight it. That idea that um, as a director, you want to see what it is the playwright is doing and have a very clear idea of what the playwright is doing in the text, but not so you can just underline it and do it again, but so that you can do something else to add dimension to the moment. And I think like transitions are a very good example of a place where if you realize the way the play is written, the amount of time that has elapsed is both important and unclear. That can become your primary responsibility in that transition. If there is the moment where lights come up and says, hey, I haven't seen you since last Tuesday, you don't need to do something in the transition to tell us that it's been four days. Um, you know, and I think that, that that is always a very important thing for me as a director is to really take measure of, of these ideas of theme and connection and dramatic question and um, uh, time passage and location, which of those things are already handled in the writing and what of the things then fall to me as the director of this production to make it uh, clear and again a storytelling moment. One thing that I've seen you do, Matt, recently is um, approaching a transition a lot like we approach many things here which is goal focused meaning I know as Kit and Matt both just said I want this transition to accomplish X I have a number of ideas about how to do that but the thing that's primary is not I think it should be this or maybe it could be this but this is what needs to happen which again takes it away from a place of a result and allows for allows for dealing with the logistics of a production or the effectiveness in the room, in the moment, of any number of ideas to solve that problem or to achieve that goal. So when you're directing a production, at what point in the process do you usually address the transitions or come up with the transitions? Do you have, because I, from the observer side, I tend to see the transitions dealt with later in the process, like right before tech or that kind of time frame, that that's when the transitions might first come up. But um, is you know is that because it that's when and you figured it out, or is does that happen before and that's just the time that you're dealing with it? I, f I find for myself, uh, it's often a starting place with the designers. So you know, transitions between locations and uh, depending on the play are often some of the biggest scenic challenges or just design challenges that a play presents not always but that's often a starting place of how are we going to be you know on the moon on a boat and in a living room in the same play in the same theater mm -hmm. uh, and so you know uh, 
with the idea of you know tackling the biggest problem first and then allowing that to solve the other uh, challenges in the play. Mm -hmm. um, often it's some of the first conversations that I have with designers. And while we may propose specific, uh, incredibly specific solutions for those transitional problems, um, I'm the most intent upon making sure that I have the vocabulary and the tools to solve the problem and can see a couple ways that it could happen, but I'm not as necessarily always obsessed with, I have to know exactly how this thing works, because I find that over the course of rehearsals, um, the idea for the transition evolves. Uh, because the transition is about taking the story from point A to point B, uh, you know, my understanding and awareness of exactly what the audience needs to get us from point A to point B and how that story is most clearly told um, is often informed by rehearsals. Mm. But because early in the process, the designers and I did enough homework to know, well, we could solve it with A, B, C, or D, or any comb combination of those. Uh, then it's kind of towards the end of rehearsal that you begin to go, okay, we're gonna solve this one with B, and this one with A, and this one with C. Mm -hmm. uh, is the way I find that I tend to work. And that's also the point in the process, I think, where the actors become involved in it too. So executing the transitions right before tech, in my experience, has been, from, from the actor side and the director side really, has been a lot about the um, all of that behind the scenes work that you're doing as a director with the designers to figure out what's the, what's the thing you're gonna put into place and then teaching it to the actors, working with the actual set, with the actual solutions mm -hmm. and moving it forward there, which I think is probably why it shows up sometimes at that point in the process, even though it's really been going on mm -hmm. all along. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with that idea about, as we were talking about with playwriting, you know, that hopefully you know why you're ending here and why you're beginning there on the page and the transition is about the most compelling way to bridge from one to the other. Um, you know, and, and sort of in terms of bringing it into rehearsal, the actors and the director, for that matter, don't totally know what the ending and the beginning of those scenes are going to be until later in the process. Uh, I mean, presumably the director has an idea, but as, you know, we've talked about many other times, the exact way something is going to play out with one group of actors versus a different group of actors is going to be different and is always going to be different than exactly what it is the director imagined at home. You know, that said, I will also say for myself that a lot of the first things I find myself imagining as I'm imagining the play at home is the transitions and is the way we're getting from one place to another or one time to another and one scene to another and a big part of that is that the way that the transitions work go a huge way towards determining the tempo of the play which is such an important choice for the director to make and basically every time you change scenes you have the choice whether you want to slingshot forward off of springboarding off of what you've just done, whether you want to make very clear that now we're slowing down and going someplace else and focusing off on something different, or whether you're redirecting the momentum of the play that you've built up uh, in some way. And I think, you know, because you can do a production of Macbeth where every single scene, the second the person is done with their last line, someone comes marching in from another side of the stage and begins the next scene. Or there can be a bagpipe band that crosses in front of the, uh, in, in front of the set in between every scene. Or some combination of those two. And either of those choices, or myriad other choices, are totally valid choices for what's going to happen. But it is a huge choice to make as a director. Um, again, in terms of the kind of ride you want to build for the audience. Um, so yeah, I know I, going into rehearsal, have a really pretty clear idea, um, as Matt was saying, of one, what the kind of ride I want to build is, and two, hopefully what the tools are that I have at my disposal to do it. But then, you know, you jump in there and you get working with the actors and you get working with the designers and, um, you know, you find out exactly the way you're going to want to you're going to want to use those tools to get the effect you want. Similar to what you were saying, Kit, about uh, redirecting the momentum of the play, uh, that is something that I find I also think a lot about when I'm thinking of the transitions is the rhythm of the play at that point. And 
is this about uh, slowing the play down and, al and allowing the audience time in between that last beat of that scene and the first beat of this next one? Is it about easing them back into an act or easing them back into the action of the play? Or is it about creating more momentum and about putting the two moments as close together as humanly possible so that we don't have any time to reflect or think before we're propelled into the next part of the story? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that often helps me decide a lot of things about what tools I can or can't use because of the practical concern of how much time they take. Mm -hmm. And I think actually that gets into too, that it, it works both ways. It's about how you want to come into a scene, but also how you want to come out of a scene too. And you know, that, that actually can be, I actually, I think a, a helpful dual way of thinking about it, which is how do I want to come out of here and what do I want to come into the next one with? And what is the what is the way to bridge those two things? What is the way to connect those two things? Because it is a very different scene between somebody says a line and storms out and the lights go out when they step out the door or someone says a line, storms out and we hold on the person left in the room for four seconds and then the lights slowly fade out. Like those are both, again, totally valid directorial choices about the way you want to handle the end of a scene. Um, but they're very different ones. Um, and again, it's very different to slowly come out of one scene, slowly come into the next, versus quick come out, quick come in, versus slowly come out, quick come in, or quick come out, slowly come in. All of those things are things that you can do and that will, in a really pretty profound way, change the way that the audience experiences it and is prepared for the next scene that they're going to come in with. And actually, I think a big part of that too is your choice of how much time do I want to give the audience to think about what has just happened before they encounter the next thing that's going to happen. Because there really is something that I find if things happen really quick right on top of each other, audiences tend to carry sort of a jumble of what happens spilling into the next scene which can be really helpful. If you give them a moment to sort of process what happens, it tends to distill it down to a very specific idea that they're going to bring into the next scene. Um, again, both totally valid, but it is a real, it, those things don't happen accidentally unless the directors let them. And I think what you were saying earlier about patterns too, you can use that to your advantage that maybe letting all of that information cascade for the audience transition after transition scene after scene after scene until the one where you want them to stop and have a moment to process um, and being able to like you said change the momentum but take advantage of those patterns and those transitions as a way of letting something stand out by the way that you do it differently and that is actually the power of patterns is actually an incredibly strong one you know that you can do things like you know, we're alternating where people are entering at the beginning of each scene, right, left, right, left, right, left, and then you have someone come in right, right. That can really unnerve an audience if you have set up that sort of expectation. That said, it is such a strong tool, and frankly, a lot of transitionary tools are strong tools, um, you know, that you need to be sure that what, that you are putting the ideas you want in the play into the play through the transitions because there are ways I actually saw a play recently I know where in between each scene there was this very distinct lighting effect and sort of this hum that happened in between every scene and it kept getting louder and longer and I was really beginning to think this is going to be the key to the play this hum that is happening we're going to find out something in the last scene about you know high tension wires in the town that's causing this problem or something but it never paid off it never reached a point of resolution and it's just something to be aware of as a director that you can put great things in transitions but you want to be sure that you're not raising new dramatic questions that you are not then going to answer uh, ultimately in the play it's again because it's there it's going to read as a choice and if it increases and in duration and intensity in transitions that noise the lighting over the course of a production it's going to read as something that is going to pay off that is leading to something 
which is something you establish, um, and that is a power you hold, and it is a power to wield, um, you know, with with uh, the awareness of what you're accomplishing with it. One of the things I've seen a lot for transitions is the use of music, um, especially if there's a lower budget or a, a complicated festival situation is that music is a incredibly powerful tool that can be done low cost that you know you can bring the lights down and play music and then bring the lights up in order to get from one place to another and your choice of music uh, will be a commentary on what happened before or what's happening uh, next and but I've seen it done both ways where it's just a cool piece of music that they like, so it that's the atmosphere that's happening, the ambiance that's telling you what kind of a play this is, rather than actually doing anything for the story. And it can actually cloud the story because people have such strong associations with specific songs and specific lyrics that it can be trying to replace or write part of the play with the lyrics to to try to fix story problems or create moments that are not actually part of the play. But I have also seen it be very effective way to lead an audience somewhere with with an aural cue rather than a visual one. I actually remember a playwright I worked with that the very first meeting I had with him about his play, he said, I have a very strict rule that no songs with lyrics can be used near my play. I do not want any other words but mine near the play. Which, frankly, I thought was overstating the case. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing, actually, that I will say, and it's a subtle difference, but I think a very important one in terms of using music, that there's a difference... And I think more it's recognizing that there's a difference between the lights come down and they play music and music starts playing and then the lights go down. Mm -hmm. That generally if you're talking about something that's about pulling the audience through uh, the story that doesn't just feel like filler while they change the set, to actually have the music come up while the lights are up and let that guide guide the lights down with the music and or guide the last movements in the scene sometimes you do want the it goes down in silence and then music comes up but I do find having seen and having worked with music in transitions it definitely as a rule of thumb tends to help things cohere to have the song, the music start before the light cue rather than vice versa or the other way around to have the music start in the in the blackout or in the transition and become a part of the next scene mm -hmm. and it's a tool then as to whether we're bringing you know what we're bringing forward from the scene we've just left or whether we're launching kind of into the next one and how how it it changes maybe our direction mm -hmm. and if the music is actually like incidental music in the next scene it can help establish a change in time hmm. or you know that oh this is they're listening to music now if this you know that it's one of those things that's uh, a subtle implicit way to to carry you somewhere else or you know that's beach music they're on the beach now um, that kind of thing or summer or winter or Christmas is particularly Christmas music is very powerful. Mm -hmm. That's another thing, much like many of the tools we've discussed, is going to read as as a choice and is going to have an effect on, um, especially, you know, something with lyrics, being cognizant of that. Um, the pace of the music, its relationship to the scene before and after, can all be very useful and powerful tools uh, and will be seen as such whether or not you choose to use them. I find when you're using music in transitions, the question of lyrics or not is often a, a double-edged sword, because either it's something that you don't want the audience to be paying attention to the lyric, because for whatever reason the song is evoking what you want, or you're like, haha, they should hear this lyric, but then they're not listening to the lyric, they're watching something else on stage. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think 
unless you're using something that is incredibly specific and incredibly well-known and perfectly bridges the moment from thing to thing, I don't think you're... It's very difficult to be in a situation where they're hearing the lyric you want or they're not uh, across the board. The other thing that's useful to talk about uh, in terms of you know music and plays is obviously also you know musicals, which uh, music is a fabric of the way that the story is told, and it can be a huge help to a director in terms of getting from one place to another and what you want the audience to be focused on or thinking about, depending on what song you choose to play, either just you know uh, with the orchestra or you know, with a character singing as they move from point A to point B, a reprise of something. Uh, and can be a great uh, tool for the director in terms of uh, what aspect of the story we're focusing on and whose character we're inside the head of. Uh, and also, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times musicals have elaborate sets and things that take time to change and is a very great way to keep the story moving forward while you're doing complicated things, either uh, you know, upstage or around the actors uh, as we're getting from point A to point B. Because it gives the audience somewhere to look. You, you know, you're directing, <laughs> directing where they're gonna look and what part of the story they're following to carry them through from one moment to the next, which is a good, you know, a transition. <laughs> well, that does, Jill, get into a, an important thing that actually I don't think we do talk about enough, but a, a huge part of the director's job is, one, directing actors and designers and what they'll do, but a huge part of it is directing the audience experience without ever being able to talk directly to them. And, you know, that that idea of transitions are just such a key part of that thing about shaping an audience's experience of a story, um, you know, and where you can use all of these different tools. Um, one of the things that you were talking about, Matt, with the uh, musical transitions in a musical, presumably, um, especially in a first production of a musical, that would be done in part in collaboration with the writers of the musical. And do you guys have thoughts, not just about musicals, but about straight plays, about the collaboration between the director and writer in creating transitions in a first production? Uh, yes, Kit, something you were saying earlier, that when you're writing a play, you try and use your fullest imagination without maybe being sure how something could be solved. Um, I know that when I'm uh, approaching a new piece, whether it be a play or a musical, uh, I like to tackle it with the same, uh, in a very similar manner of, this is a problem that has to be solved and cannot be changed. It's as if we are working on a play where the playwright was dead and we could not go in and tinker and uh, create something. And after having exhausted every possibility either because of you know this reason or that that this thing cannot be achieved only then to go back to the playwright and say we cannot do exactly this how can we achieve something as close to this as possible that will still fulfill the same story moments we need to get from a to b given the limita limitations of whatever circumstance we're in um but it's it's never an option to go in and say this is going to be hard uh, because I think then you're doing yourself a great disservice uh, and, you know, eliminating an opportunity for something very exciting to happen. I actually had a very interesting experience relatively recently in a situation where I was both the director and the playwright. Um, but it was a production of a play that had been done a number of years ago several times, but I was directing it again at a, at a university. And the concept of the play is it's a series of scenes between this guy and his girlfriend and some of them her best friend is in it and the concept of it is that this guy has fallen in love with his girlfriend's best friend and it is every scene is him attempting to tell her and the different ways it goes bad when he tries to share this with his girlfriend as the relationship has gone further and further on but there's something that's written into the play that there's a transition in the writing between every scene where he says and it's something very much along the lines of um, that's not what was supposed to happen I take it back five months later so it's each of those steps with the idea being that I take it back this thing didn't actually happen 
And so we pick up the next scene in a world where he had not yet told her. But it was something that, you know, as a challenge as a director to figure out a way to make very sure that that was clear that that's what the intention was. And so something that we really had created in the design or in the staging of the transitions was that we had basically a unit set where it was all the same pieces except for one chair that would move locations every time. And with the design of it, it actually was very cool that it really created very different feeling spaces based on just where this one chair went. And so what we had was every transition, she would say off in the direction where the person had left the scene, because every scene has someone storming off, <laughs> either the friend or the girlfriend storming off for one reason or another. And off in that direction, she'd say, that's not what was supposed to happen. Turn straight out to the audience I take it back, pick up the chair and move it four months later and place it down. And that was the pattern that we created in every scene until the last scene. And what happens in the end is that the friend is is killed in an accident and he still, after she's dead, tries to tell his girlfriend. But because he feels like he has to, it's a whole thing. But what we ended up doing was, and it was something where as the writer and and director I collaborated with myself was in that production the that pattern in the direction of it had been so well established that what we ended up doing was taking out the lines from the last transition so that it was just he watched after the friend as she stormed off in the last scene turned and looked at the audience picked up the chair and moved it and put it where it was going and it was something that that pattern had been so clearly established that it really was kind of chilling to watch it reenacted without the lines. And then I think the fact that, and all of a sudden they start putting on their black clothes and things like that, you all of a sudden realize something is very, very wrong. But I think that transition really helped that. But it was something though that was actually a little bit of the opposite of, I think a lot of times what happens in the collaboration between the director and, and writer, which is not we need more to clarify the transition, but that by that point in the process, the transition had been so clearly established that we could get rid of the lines and still understand what was going on. And it actually is something, you know, I think in future productions of the, I'm still trying to decide whether I want to write that into the, into the play or not. I don't know. Maybe it was just something for that production. Mm. That's something I saw this year <clears throat> while working on a play. As an actor, between a playwright and a director, that came up often was it was the first time the play was being put up on its feet, and often the playwright she'd say, "Oh, oh, we don't, we don't need that. It's happening elsewhere in the play, elsewhere in the production." Um, and it was a, almost a sigh of relief whenever those moments would happen. The transition is taking care of that, um, that storytelling moment, that acceleration of the events that we don't need to be as explicit at this point in the scene. Um, before we wrap up, uh, let's talk a bit about um, the actors and the way that actors think about transitions. Uh, how do you guys think about transitions when you're acting? It's often useful not to, if the, you know, meaning to let, to put that trust in that storytelling and that work in the hands of the people whose job it is, the director, the designers, if the transition means it's a blackout, there's music, lights up on the next scene. It's about executing that and letting, you know, letting that um, the work that everyone else involved in the production is doing get done. There are opportunities sometimes for a transition to be an acting moment, um, depending on the way that it happens. If you're a character that's transitioning from one scene to another and you remain on stage, or there's a passage of time during which you're there, um, it can be a useful acting moment and something to clarify with the director what is happening during this time and can be useful as an actor to bring you through a time shift or an acceleration or to signify and in some ways with your work um, experience a major event that happens off stage. If you do find yourself in that position in a production, again, 
it's an opportunity, it's a tool to do the work that you're already doing on the play. Although if that opportunity isn't there, I would say don't worry about it in the same way that you wouldn't worry about the playwright's theme when you're on stage in the scene advocating for your character. I agree that it's helpful to not feel responsible to telling the story in the transitions and to let that be something that um, I have one particular role in and not having to think about the big picture. Um, but I think for me, I'm always looking for the ways that the, the arc of the show connects for me. And so the transitions are continue to be a part of that for me. And I, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds of transitions that you face as an actor. And one of them is you're even moving the set around. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can be seen, sometimes you're doing that in black. Sometimes, like you said, there's a, a, a big offstage event that you have to be ready to, to launch into the aftermath of in the next scene. And so I'm, I'm kind of always looking for what those, what those arc moments are for me and whatever I need to do during those transitions to help me propel myself and my character forward. And I think it's different every single time. What tools you have available to you are different every single time. But even being the character in a transition where you are bringing a table out, figuring out what that's really about for my character, figuring out what am I setting up for? what is my point of view about moving this table in this moment so that it's not ever dropping out of the show for me or only doing something that's technical but finding a way that it connects yeah even if it is doing that in dark or in a blackout or very dark light moving the table on because that's who we need to move the table or that's the decision the director's made um, finding a way to justify or continue to do your work rather than drop out of the show in the same way that your offstage moments, your preparation for the show, are all time that's yours to to aid you in doing the work that you're doing throughout the play. It's important to remain active, remain engaged, um, and find a way in. Sometimes that way in will be more explicit. Often it'll be incumbent upon you to find the way in which it is useful when it is not as explicit. And I do think that both of those things you guys are talking about actually points to a little bit of something uh, for directors, too, is that idea that not to let yourself off the hook with an easy solution to a transition. That, you know, people do it, but, you know, that idea of I'm going to throw blue light up and have people move tables around, there is always a more interesting and more storytelling way to do something. If you need actors to carry a table on, there are certain actors that make a lot more sense to carry that table on together than other characters. Even if they're not literally pretending to move into the house, you can create a sense of connection between these two actors who are working together to move a set piece, um, you know, rather than... Um, you know, throwing up blue light and hoping people don't recognize who's who in the, in, in the light. Um, and just that idea to set a high bar for yourself as a director to turn every moment into a storytelling moment rather than turn your transitions into an opportunity to get away with things. Yeah, because I would think like if you were choosing people to move a table that it would be the people who are able to lift the table. But it would make much more sense if it was people who would be moving a table together. Yeah, I remember when I, where I, I went to grad school at the Actors Studio Drama School and they had every year this, uh, and they still do, these uh, showcase, uh, this rep season they called it, where it was a series of shows directed by all the graduating or directed, acted by, and uh, some of them written by the graduating students. And they were all 30-minute, either 30-minute plays or 30-minute segments of plays, and then they had a turnover. And Sean Lewis, who is the head designer there, and, and still is, and head of the, the design department there, the ways in which she designed the transitions and things like that, and the choice of, like, they would build this whole room and then boom, place the bed and the lights would go out. And all of a sudden you're like prepared for this play about the bed. And that's exactly what it was. That it was it was not just a matter of putting the 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 um the getting the furniture out there as quickly as possible. Probably each of those transitions would have taken two minutes just to throw stuff out there. Instead it took two minutes and thirty seconds. 
but it was so interesting to watch and there was so much story in how this set came together in the transition between uh, two plays and you know again I think that's just what a great opportunity that is for you as a director and as designers to find a way to make the fact that the couch has to come on something that doesn't just get the couch on the stage but also gets a certain idea or a certain relationship clearer in the mind of the audience because of the way that you do it. Something that uh, seems like a through line between playwright, director, and actor uh, that just from talking about it has become clear to me is that um, as an actor, as the director, as the playwright, you never ever want the story to stop and the opportunity to tell a story presents itself even more uh, clearly in these moments in between, th in between things. Uh, and as you said, Kit, uh, instead of shying away from that, embracing that opportunity, whether you're the actor, the playwright, or the director, uh, feels like something that we've been saying uh, from each of these perspectives. I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you'd like to learn more about Cry Havoc, our classes, our other programs, and how to support the podcast and all of Cry Havoc's other free programming, go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. You can follow us on Twitter at CryHavocNYC, or you can find us on Facebook as The Cry Havoc Company. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes Store, and while you're there, please write us a review and give us a rating. It helps other people find the podcast. So, for myself, Jen, Jersey, Matt, Jen, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.